If you would, please turn in your Bibles with me to the book of Acts, chapter 3. Acts, chapter 3. Uh, this morning we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 10. So, Acts, chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. In 1860, Charles Dickens published one of his most successful pieces, Great Expectations. Now, at the time, it was presented to the public... Uh, as a weekly serial, meaning it was, uh, it was printed once a week over the course of about a year, sort of like a TV mini-series dramas that you might watch on Netflix or something like that today. Well, in this novel, Dickens tells a story about a boy named Pip who grows up in poverty, realizes his dreams of becoming a respected gentleman through the generosity of a mysterious benefactor. Now, the story itself turns out to be more than just a feel-good, rags-to-riches kind of tale. Uh, Pip rises from his humble beginnings, uh, and as he does so, he dedicates himself to becoming this, this idea of becoming a true gentleman, trying to live up to what he perceives to be the expectations of the person who has sponsored him, even though he doesn't know who that is. As a result, we see that he clings to these great expectations only to realize in the end that his sponsor is not the rich noblewoman that he thought it was, but actually an escaped convict that he met as a boy. Now, it's incredible, as Pip realizes this, uh, to watch his view of himself really crumble as he learns the source of his new station. It's convicting, really, to watch Pip's pride fall down around him as he grapples with the reality that he received these great expectations from such an unlikely source. In the end, when the complex truth of the situation is finally revealed, the original expectations that Pip had for himself are shown to be cheap, and he receives much more than he originally bargained for, as his integrity is restored, his character grows, and he's rescued from this lust for money and respect, and even marries the girl he's always loved, but who has always been out of reach. Now, people have found Dickens' story compelling for many different reasons, but I think particularly for the unlikely heroes that we encounter in that story. It's through the love and the sacrifice of people that Pip is rescued from his hapless expectations uh, to receive better, truly valuable things. And though this is a work of fiction, it portrays, I think, the powerful reality of the way that, the sin, that our sinful nature veils our eyes to what is truly valuable, righteousness, love, joy, and the riches of the glory of God. Now, we talk a lot as Christians about God and His grace, not always stopping to define what grace really is. Grace is the word that the Bible uses to describe the way that God has poured out the favor of His love on people who do not deserve it. This grace, as we've already seen in the book of Acts, has been secured for us by God in and through the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's in this grace that God changes us and changes uh, our desires, not only uh, naming us heirs with his own son, but actually giving us hearts that have greater expectations than the cheap, temporary satisfaction that sin promised to give to us. And this morning, we're looking at an amazing display of God's power, which demonstrates the authenticity of the power of the gospel, which recognizes the authority of King Jesus and causes us to wonder at the glory of a God 
who defies our expectations with his own eternal purposes. As, we, as we're about to read Luke's account of a man who was made physically well, we're intended to see how this is but a taste of the work that God does in us to make us spiritually well in Christ the King. So what we're looking at here is but a small taste of the work that God is doing in and through the work of Jesus to erase the effects on creation and to make all things new to the glory and the honor of his name. So if you would please stand with me as we read this passage together and what has been recorded for us in Acts chapter 3 verses 1 through 10. This is the word of the Lord. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man, lame from birth, was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the Beautiful Gate to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God for it. Please be seated. Well, last week as we were wrapping up Acts chapter 2, Luke told us how awe had come over the church and all who heard the message that was being preached in Jerusalem as many wonders and signs were being done to the apostles. It appears that after giving us an overview of what God was doing in and through his church, that Luke is now giving us some specifics. He's not recorded every sign or every wonder that was done by the apostles, but he's recorded this one in particular, dramatically, with, some, with, a, with a great amount of detail, because I think it introduces Peter's second sermon, it sets the stage for the persecution of the church that actually followed this event, and it explains how God worked in and through this particular event to bring many more people to faith. It's of such importance to Luke that he actually devotes the majority of two whole chapters to tell us about everything that happened around this. So given the gravity and given the detail that Luke saw fit to record for us, uh, we're going to be spending some time here over the next few weeks. Uh, today, we're really going to be focusing specifically on this miraculous healing of this man. Um, over the next two weeks, my plan is to be looking at Peter's sermon, and then after that, we're going to get into the fallout and the opposition of the Jewish leaders that came in response to this witness that Jesus is indeed the Christ. So we've got some time to be working through this. Just want to give you a little bit of a roadmap. Uh, and once again, uh, what we're looking at specifically today is what's going on in this man's life and this power, uh, this powerful work that was done in the name of Jesus. So that leads us to, to our main idea for this morning, which is this. 
God has given us a greater inheritance than we might have ever expected in Jesus Christ. God gives us a greater inheritance, greater expectations, and that's what I want to focus on this morning. So in our time this morning, I actually want to focus on three things, which, surprise, are going to be our three points uh, about what this teaches us about this greater inheritance that God has given us. First, we're going to see that he has given us a gift that is greater than gold, a gift greater than gold. Second, we're going to be seeing how God has called us in a name of power. He's called us in a name of power, the name of Christ. And lastly, uh, this passage shows us how, um, how God works to complete this work in us. So he's given us a complete work. I want to begin by looking at a gift greater than gold. Now, if you talk to any New Testament scholar, they will uh, by, tell you that by far and away, the best literary Greek in the New Testament is Luke's. Luke was a doctor. His attention to detail and the level of his grammar stands out. And he's really outdone himself here. It's like we're watching all of this happen and unfold right in front of us. Uh, the only thing we're missing in this passage is some popcorn. So let's, say, let's set the stage here. Peter and John are in Jerusalem still. The church has not been scattered at this point. They're doing what Luke has already described in Acts 2, going to the temple to worship and to pray. Now, if you don't know a lot about the city of Jerusalem, what you need to know simply is that the temple was located on a high spot in the city. Uh, so actually, when Luke tells us that they were going up, he's not just saying, oh, I'm going up to Green Bay. He's saying, no, they literally are going up the hill. They're climbing as they walk to the pinnacle of this hill. And we see that they weren't doing this alone. Who tells us actually they were going with the crowds at the hour of prayer, which is the time of the evening sacrifice, would have been, which is what he says he calls it the ninth hour, would have been three o'clock in the afternoon. People from all over the city would have stopped what they were doing making, and made their way to the temple to pray together as this evening sacrifice was being offered. Now there was in the crowd another man who was making his way to the temple as well. But we see that he was going to the temple for another reason. This man was lame. He could not walk. And he had been this way since birth. He had never known what it was to take a step. Though he lay next to the temple gate every day, he had never walked through that gate himself. Everywhere he went, he had to be carried. He lived his life depending on the mercy of others. And his friends were also carrying him up the hill to the temple, not so that he could enter and worship, but to ask alms of those who were going there to do that. The hope was that as people made their way into God's house of worship, they would be in a generous, gracious mood and would be willing to give to him, to help provide for him. So it makes sense that his friends would set him here, since this would have been a highly trafficked area, and hopefully people would be in the mood to help provide for his needs. Now, we don't know how many years went by as this man lay in the gate of the temple, but Luke tells us that this was a daily thing for him. Think about how many years must have gone by while this man lay there, watching people go in and out of the temple, perhaps hearing them singing together, smelling the scent of the incense wafting out of the temple and the smoke from the sacrifices that were being offered up, seeing joy on the faces of those who entered this holy place, unable to get off his bed and experience that for himself. 
Now, we're not exactly sure which temple gate Luke is talking about here. Uh, We do know from other writers of the day that one of the gates in the temple was made of very costly Corinthian brass, which was actually more costly than plating the temple gate with gold. So this, it's likely that may have been what it was. That was located on the east side of the temple in the place that separated the court of the Gentiles from the court of the women. And it's thought that Luke is probably referring to that that gate here. Uh, Regardless, it's something to think about how this man came to the gate of the temple every day to sit before such beauty while only being able really to focus on getting money from others to allow him to get his next meal. Apparently, this man was already in his place when Peter and John arrived at the gate themselves. And when he saw them, as was his custom, he asked them, as I'm sure he had asked many others already, for any money they might spare. Now, when people don't want to deal with someone else, uh, we tend to try and avoid eye contact. It's just easier not to look. No one would be at fault, uh, and I think no one would fault anyone, for wanting to keep their mind on the beauty of God and the beauty of his house rather than dealing with this wretched poor beggar. But as this man called out, Luke tells us that Peter and John did not look the other way. In fact, in verse 4, he says that they directed their gaze at this man. Uh, This was not a glance. They looked at him. They locked eyes with him. They gave him attention. Luke actually describes this look using the same word that he used to describe the way the apostles gazed at Christ as he was ascending into heaven. And then Peter said to this man, look at us. Now you can just feel the intensity jumping off the page here as Peter and John and this man share this moment together. And when someone, especially someone you don't know, looks at you and says, look at me, it gets your full undivided attention. And it certainly got the attention of this beggar since Luke says he affixed his attention on them. Now, I imagine that this guy must have felt a real surge of excitement that someone would take notice of him like this. It's one thing to drop money into a cup as you're walking by. It's a totally different thing to start a conversation, especially when you start it like this. Luke actually tells us that this man fixed his attention on Peter and on John in this way because he was expecting to receive something from them. Uh, People don't do this sort of thing unless they're going to do something significant for someone else. So clearly, I think his his expectations for what he was about to receive must have been pretty optimistic. Hey, maybe I'll be able to uh, eat for a few days off of what these guys are about to give me. Now, can you imagine how this guy's heart must have dropped as Peter, staring into his eyes, said, I have no silver and gold. I mean, that's what this man was hoping for. He was hoping to get something that would allow him to stay alive. He was focused on getting something for that next meal. And here's Peter looking into his soul, dashing those hopes, telling him, hey brother, I have no money to give you. My pockets are empty. But as quickly as those hopes fell, dashed to the ground, something new, something better took its place. I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you, Peter told this man. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. 
And then Luke tells us that Peter reached out and touched this man. He took him by the right hand and raised his, uh, his, him up and immediately his feet and his ankles were made strong. In verse 8, Luke actually goes so far as to say that this man leaped up and that he stood and he began to walk for the first time in his life. No rehab, no physical therapy. He was well. He was whole. His life was going to be totally different than it had ever been before. Peter didn't give this man what he wanted. By the power of God working through him, he gave this man something he'd never dreamed was possible. God exceeded this man's expectations. And in this astonishing act of power, we get a small glimpse of the way that God has exceeded the hopes of sinners. Not just to rescue us from the consequences of our sin, but to rescue us from that sin entirely, to make us his own sons and daughters, heirs with Christ. The good news of the gospel delivers more. It delivers more. And that's because God's purpose is not just to bring relief to the symptoms of our, of our sin. He's dedicated to curing it, to removing that disease from us. It would have been uh, it would have still been an act of kindness and an act of kind mercy if God had provided Peter with some means uh, to give this man what he had asked for. I mean, God had done that before when he provided Peter a shekel by means of a fish's mouth to pay the collectors of the true drachma tax. God could have done that here, but he didn't. He gave more. He made this man well. No longer did this man sit by the gate of the temple. He actually entered that, temp that temple by the very gate he had sat in front of himself. Now, there are three things about the way this man received this gift a gift greater than gold or silver, which reflect on the even greater gift of how God works to save sinners. First, we see that salvation is a free gift of grace. Salvation is a free gift of God's grace. This man had nothing to give in return for what he received except to have a heart of thanksgiving. He did not purchase his legs. He did not merit them with righteous deeds. He received them freely. He had a righteous benefactor whose wealth of love and divine grace had made him well. In our confession as believers, we stand firmly on this ground that we are made righteous by God, by His grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. There is no other gospel. And the reality that this free gift is in fact free to us is illustrated beautifully for us in the same way that this man received his legs. Second, we see that this salvation is more than we could ever imagine. Thank God that he doesn't always give us what we ask for. What a tragedy it would be for us to have every comfort this world can offer, every fleshly desire our heart could have, all the temporary riches we could hope for, but to be separated from God. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul, Jesus asks us? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Better is one day in the courts of the Lord than a thousand elsewhere. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. 
That is the love and the grace of God. Thank God that as a loving Father, He has set aside better things for us than even what we think we need. How do I know that? Well, because of what Paul says in Romans 8, 31-32. What shall we say of these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him give us all things? The promises of the gospel stand, because they are fixed and founded on the rock of Christ. So while we may face plenty and need, sickness and health, anxiety or comfort, we may trust that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Our shepherd will not abandon us. He brings us to better fields. Nothing can separate us from his love. Daily, God surprises us with new depths of his grace and his love, and he gives us so much more than we could ever imagine because he's given us his son. Thirdly, we see in this man how in salvation we are made a new creature. We are made new creatures. This man went from being a lame beggar to being a worshiper in the house of God. In John 3, Jesus tells Nicodemus, Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Before we can be part of the kingdom of Christ, we have to be made new. What evidence do we have that a person has received this new birth? How do we know that the Spirit is in us? Well, like this man, we see a supernatural change in them. The divine image that was marred and disordered has been made right and restored. Where there once was death and darkness, now there is light and life. Mouths that once breathed rebellion against God, now sing His praises. Tongues that once had a taste for sin and a lust for sin, now hunger and thirst for righteousness. Heads that were raised in pride, now bow in humble praise. Eyes that were blind and dark, now see Christ is King. Hearts that were stone cold to God are now set ablaze with affection for Him. Minds that were lost in ever now see the truth and the glory and the majesty of King Jesus. That's what it looks like to be a new creature. It looks like a lame beggar outside the gates becoming a leaping lamb in the house of the Lord. And that is why the gospel is better than gold. This man got to experience this gift in a radical, visible way. But the physical transformation he received is only a taste of of the spiritual transformation that has been secured for us by Jesus our Savior. This salvation is better than gold. And that brings us to consider our second point this morning, how we have received a name of power and been called in the name of power. In the Old Testament, God would send prophets to the people to call them to repentance, to warn them of judgment if they did not repent, and to make known to them his mercy and love. A prophet was called a messenger. It wasn't a prophet's place to do anything more or anything less than what God had told them to say or to do. So before a prophet would speak the word that they had received from God, they would begin by saying, Thus says the Lord. And then they deliver the message. 
Their words had authority because they came from God, not because they came from the mouth of a man who was a prophet. Now that's an important principle to bear in mind as we look at how Peter healed this man in the name of Jesus. This wasn't something that Peter did on his own authority. It wasn't something he did on his own power. This miracle was intended to demonstrate the authority and the power of King Jesus. You're supposed to look at this and say, Jesus truly does reign. It was intended to confirm the message of the gospel which Jesus had commissioned Peter and the others to preach as witnesses of his resurrection. Now we're going to get into that sermon uh, starting with next week. But for now we need to see how this this really was meant to authorize that message. If we glance down at verses 11 through 16, we'll find Peter explaining to the crowd how Jesus made this man well. He speaks to them of how God glorified Jesus through the cross, how he raised him from the dead, and then he explained uh, how this man had in fact been made well through faith in Jesus' name. Now, Peter's explanation helps us to understand what God was accomplishing through this great act of mercy. Jesus had been crucified on the charge that he was the king of the Jews. He was accused by the Jewish leaders of being a blasphemer because he had said he was the son of God. So as he was on the cross, we find that those who passed by him scorned him and mocked him, saying, If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. And to each other they said, He saved others, he cannot save himself. He is, if he, he is the king of Israel, let him come down from the cross and we'll believe in him. He trusts God, let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. Now, Jesus did come down from the cross. But it was only after he had made full atonement for sin through his death. He died there, the crucified king, and it was through his suffering and his death that Jesus broke the power of sin and death for us. To show this effect, God delivered him, giving him authority to take up his life again on the third day, rising from the dead. Of this, Peter was a witness. And in the name of Jesus, whom God has exalted as Christ and Lord, this man was healed. When Peter healed this man in the name of Jesus, it was to demonstrate in power that Jesus is in fact the Christ who is ruling and reigning in glory at the right hand of the Father. The suffering that this man had endured was removed from him to show that Jesus has authority, not merely to remove the symptoms of our sin from us, but actually that he has authority to destroy it. 1 John Chapter 3 in the second part of verse 8 says, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. The rescue of this man from his physical suffering was a demonstration of how Jesus is at work expanding his kingdom, making all things new. Now, Jesus' name is not a magical formula that gives us power to do whatever we want. Later in the book of Acts, we'll see how Luke tells us about some Jewish exorcists who were trying to cast out a demon. When they had exhausted every other means, they tried to use Jesus' name like a magical charm. And rather than casting out the demon, we'll see that it actually refused to recognize their authority. And the man who was possessed leapt on them and beat them black and blue. So the name of Jesus is not a magical charm. For for Peter to act this way, to say, in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, be healed, 
He had to actually act in allegiance to Jesus with the authority he had received from Jesus according to the prompting of the Holy Spirit, according to Jesus' own commands. Uh, Peter was heralding the king's message as the king's messenger, calling everyone who saw this to faith and repentance. As a senior in high school, I, I got to be the lab assistant for the science department. So I got to go to places that uh, other students weren't normally allowed to go. I got to set up experiments. I got to deal with chemicals. I got to bend glass. Um, I even got to design uh, some labs for classes I hadn't actually taken, which was very interesting when I actually took that class. Um, oftentimes, though, I was, I was a go-between between between teachers if they needed to send a message to another teacher. So they'd tell me, hey, I need help with this, and I'd go do it. Um, I did all those things. Because I, and I was off, because I was authorized to do those things. When someone acts in the name of someone else, it means two things. That they are doing the will of that person they are representing, and that they have been authorized by that person to do that thing. That's what Peter was doing when he healed this man. And because of that, we see the power of Jesus' name. It's his will and his power to make sinners into sons. It's his decree to rule over all authorities. It's his charter which authorizes the church to act with authority. It's his commission that sends us out into the world with a message of the gospel. That's why we can trust what the scripture says. That everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. It is true because the name of Jesus has this power. And people got to see that firsthand in the way this man was healed. Which brings us to our third point this morning as we look at the completeness of this work. And the thing that really stands out about this miracle, besides the fact that this man went from being lame to being able to walk, is how quickly all of this happened. Luke, as a doctor, tells us uh, he spends a little more time describing the actual experience of this man. He could have just said, oh, and the man was healed. But he doesn't. He actually says this man's feet and his ankles were made strong immediately. So in verse 2, he, tell, he told us that this man had actually been lame from birth. So he'd never actually learned how to walk as a child. His muscles would have been atrophied and emaciated. As a beggar, we can't imagine he'd been eating uh, choice foods. So his figure would have, been, would have reflected that. None of that, though, was able to stand in the way of this display of God's power. In the name of Jesus, this man was made new. As Peter took his hand and raised him up, Luke says he actually leaped up. So he's not hobbling along. There's no need for crutches here. There's no one taking him by the hand to lead him or, or to support his weight. He was healed. Healed completely. Able to walk. Able to leap. And leap he did. Look at what Luke says about this guy. He stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. It's one thing for a man who's been born lame to now all of a sudden be able to walk. It's another thing for this to happen so suddenly. But really, what I really want you to see and notice is how complete this work was. This really is where we see the overflow of the power and the authority of Jesus. If you hadn't known this guy, you'd never have believed that he had been born lame. Here's the thing. Everyone in the temple did know this guy. 
and they did know that he was lame. Verse 9, Luke says, All the people saw him walking and praising, and they recognized him as the one who sat in the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what happened to him. So it's not just that they know this guy's a beggar. They know exactly where this guy begs from. They had seen him daily as they made, them, made their way into the temple themselves. Countless times they'd passed this man. They'd heard him call for help. They had seen him carried to the gate. They diverted their eyes from his twisted, lifeless legs. And now here he is in the midst of them, leaping for joy, walking on his own power, praising God with great cries and shouts. Why were they so amazed? It was because they knew who he once was, And now they saw him as he was always meant to be. There's no one happier in a room than a person who's received a clear CAT scan after they've gone through months of chemotherapy for their cancer. There's no heart that is relieved like a mother who receives her son safe and untouched after they've been in a terrible accident. And I tell you that no one shouted praises in the temple that day louder than this man. Because he hadn't just been made well, he'd been made well completely. I I love how this man's instant response was to rush into God's house. Doesn't that tell you something about his heart? He didn't run to find his friends or his family. He didn't go to the governor to show this great work that had been done. He didn't call the scribes together and call for a press report. He did not remain at the gate. He entered the place he'd never been able to take himself before. He'd been healed, and he wanted to be where God was. He wanted to be in God's house. And while before all he could think about was where his next meal was going to come from, now his eyes were fixed on the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's the sort of transformation that comes when Jesus saves a sinner. No one sings a happy, with a happier heart than a person who knows that their sins are no more. No one wants to be in the presence of God more than the one who's been called by the Son. The power of the name of Jesus is a power that heals and heals completely. And on this day, what the prophet Isaiah foretold came to pass. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands. Make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Friends, this is the power of the name of Jesus. A power to save, a power to make us new, a power to restore us to what we were meant to be, a power to free us from the hand of Satan and the desires of the flesh, power to give us knowledge and wisdom, and power to live in his life. What we have in the miracle of this lame man is but a taste of the work that Jesus does in the soul of a person who repents and trusts in him. So my question this morning is, have you experienced this power yourself? Are you following Jesus? If not, 
And the call is clear. Repent and trust in the name of Jesus. For no other name is given to men or women by which we may be saved. Now, if you have, then you have more reason than any to shout the praises of your God because you've been redeemed and he will complete his work in you because that's the power of Jesus. Now, we all have something in common with this lame beggar. We're all born under sin's curse, unable and unwilling to enter the presence of a holy God. But this same holy God has loved us and sent his only begotten son to remove that curse from us. He has paid the debt and he makes us new. One day, this sin-touched body will be remade. One day, these desires for fleshly things will be no more. One day we will enter the house of our Heavenly Father to be received into His presence, to dwell with Him forever in the fullness of His glory with great joy. This is the work of God our Savior. And while we wait on that work to be completed, I think we can look at the power of Jesus' name, how it brought healing to this man's physical body, and rejoice with greater expectations in the hope that has been given to all who trust in him. Praise be to God. Let's pray. Lord, we're here because we have, uh, we really believe that you, by the power of the name of Jesus, restore us to yourself. We have experienced that. We believe that. You have opened our eyes to the truth. And Father, our deep desire is that others would also come to know this salvation, this healing for themselves. Our desire, Father, is to see sinful hearts brought to repentance and faith. And you've called us to share this good news as the embassy of your kingdom. Father, thank you for that. Give us strength. Strength to proclaim this message. Strength to endure whatever comes as a result. Strength to live with greater expectations of heaven, knowing that you really will make all things new and that you are doing that in and through Jesus Christ. Thank you for this powerful display of Jesus' work, and I pray that you give us hearts to trust you as you work in us to perfect us into his image. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.